welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. This week we are back in the USA and as well as our regular and highly knowledgeable co-presenter Dr. Bob Hoke, we have a special guest who amongst the cattle business in US needs no introduction, Tom Burke from the Angus Hall of Fame. Welcome gentlemen and thanks for taking the time to be here with us on Top Lines and Tales. I'm excited about being with you. Tom, originally from Minnesota, you joined the American Angus Association in 1955. That's that's quite a while ago, Tom. Yes, and you know, I've been an Angus enthusiast since, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, all my life. And I've always loved the breed. I've had a world of respect for, uh, for it, and I'm proud to be a part of it. As you say, an Angus man through and through, and you became president of the Minnesota Future Farmers of America in 1963. You'd be kind of young for that post back then. Um, tell me, how did, how did holding such a high leadership position as a youth, how did that help you in your career? Well, I think that in the United States, that FFA is really an excellent organization. It, it prepares you for the rest of your life from the standpoint of parliamentary procedure, from the standpoint of leadership characteristics. It's just a, it's just a good guideline. Uh, to make you be able to, uh, as I guess, relate with your fellow man. Yeah. I think it brings the best out of you by being a, a FFA member. Yeah, can I yeah, add something to that? Yeah, I mean, one thing, FFA here does teach you the parliamentary procedure. We have parliamentary procedure teams on how to handle meetings, how to, I mean, all these different things. I'll tell you, when you have FFA people running meetings, it's all the difference in the world because they don't yes. Robert's Rules of Order. And I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, you, these ag folks are great. It's when you get the non ag folks that can't, can't run a meeting. Bob, uh, I'd have to second that motion. When I go to a lot of Angus meetings, I can always tell when the presiding officer has had some FFA experience because uh, he's right on the spot from the standpoint of being able to conduct the meeting and knowing parliamentary procedure. Sure, and, and we have a similar organization in the UK called the Young Farmers Movement. and Every, every country should do that. Yeah. And then, Tom, your first major job in the livestock industry as a fieldman uh, for, I guess, at the time, your country's largest livestock publication, the, the Drover's Journal. And tell us about that role as, as a fieldman at Drover's and uh, any other livestock publications for that matter. Well, the uh, Dover's Journal was a great training grounds for a lot of people. Uh, as a fieldman for the Dover's Journal, you worked sales, you sold advertising, you, had, uh, you covered shows, uh, you made a lot of contacts with uh, cattlemen, uh, both purebred and commercial throughout the uh, livestock industry. And it was a wonderful job. I really liked it. I was there for two years, and uh, I treasured my experience. Well, and after looking for the drovers, uh, you joined J.B. McCorkle's sales management business, and that's a name that's cropped many times in my research and, and on these podcasts as well. I think going back to his Ohio State days of training some of the U.S.'s cattle greats, and uh, it's a pretty rich list of the people that, 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 that work, went to him, such as Herman Purdy, the Leachman Brothers, Bob Long, Byron Good. Dale Runyon, Don Good. There's, there's a long list there. It's, it's a treasure list. What, what, what kind of man was McCorkle, and why, why was, why was it that such talent was attracted to him, Tom? Well, he had great enthusiasm for the Angus breed. He was the first full-time Angus sale manager in our breed in modern day. Uh, he had a tremendous knowledge of the breed, 
Uh, he could relate uh, with uh, people across the industry. And he was a unique individual from the standpoint of uh, knowing and understanding the breed. Of course, he had been involved in the Angus business. His family joined the American Angus in 1898. His father was an Angus breeder. He was born in 1910, and uh, almost from day one, he was an Angus enthusiast, and that carried through his entire life until his death in 1962. Tom, Tom how did, you know, but like all those, Herman and Le Les and Lee Leachman and uh, Bob Long, how, how did all those guys end up there when he was herdsman all at one time at Ohio State? Man, that's well, had, quite a powerhouse. You had these guys, Lee and Les Leachman, uh, Herman Purdy, Dale Runyon, Ray Roth, Paul Good, Byron Good, Kenny Haynes, Bob Dupre, and uh, Robert Long and Don Good. These were all from Ohio farm families. And J.B. McCorkle, he uh, went to Ohio State University in 1936, and he went as a herdsman. So he, and, uh, he found these young guys that didn't have a lot of interest in Angus cattle, brought them to the barn and gave them a job and kind of instilled this, this Angus uh, gene into their uh, gene pool and got them enthused about the breed. Uh, of course, at that time, you know, they were, they, they, they were probably short of funding, which uh, as a college student. And so he had uh, uh, living quarters in the barn. They worked for him. And uh, uh, that, I think that was the thing that attracted them because when they first came, they were probably a little light on their Angus enthusiasm, but he got them in line. As you said, he certainly did, and some of those went on to be to be great names within within there. And, and McCorkle, of course, uh, was the one that got you into the sale management business, right, uh, Tom? And you've been in there ever since. I think. What made you decide that it would be a, a your your life profession, uh, or, or some would say your obsession? Well, I was uh, I was working at the Dover's Journal, and I hated to leave the job, but he offered me this position in his sale management farm, and of course, he he was by himself. And so uh, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity and something I'd really enjoy to work with Angus every day. And so I took him up on it, and it was a great decision because he was a real mentor. He, uh, he taught me a lot about Angus cattle, about pedigrees, uh, and about life. Uh, and so I really did enjoy working for him. Uh, he died in 1972. He, he passed away in 1972, and you took over the, the Angus Hall of Fame sales management co company, and uh, there must have been like uh, jumping in the deep end there, Tom. Yeah, it was, it was a real challenge, but I was up for it. He had been sick, and uh, he trained me really well. I mean, uh, and so when the time came, uh, he... Uh, was pretty comfortable with himself that I was in a position to take over. And uh, to his credit, uh, he did a good job with me. Okay. And uh, you're, you're now serving your 47th year, going back to 1972, as chairman of the All-American Angus Breeders Futurity. And uh, um, isn't that considered part of the Triple Crown of Angus shows there? What are the, what are the other two shows that uh, and just how prestigious is it to win that uh, Triple Crown? The, the All-American Fraternity was the original Triple Crown show. And then to follow that was the uh, North American International that's in Louisville and the National Western Stock Show in Denver. So you had to have uh, the Grand Champion Bull at all three and the Grand Champion Female to be noted as a, a Triple Crown winner. 
Yeah, and that's quite quite a feat because I mean you, that's a summer show, and uh, and then you got to carry them all the way through January and keep them fresh and. And yeah, not so all animals it. can get that done. That's for darn sure. So, Bob, you'd have you'd have like you say that summer show with the paternity. The North American would be in the fall, and uh, Denver would be in the dead of winter. Yeah, I have a question, for Tom. Why why is there people showing these animals with so darn much hair now? I mean, they used to always show them at the at the futurity slick. That seems to make sense to me. Well, we seem to be in what I call in the hair zone. Uh, a lot of people have got coolers where, where they put their cattle in and fit them. And it, it just seems to be a time when uh, cattle with hey, long hair on their legs and uh, uh, throughout their body, they're really in style. Of course, it gives them a lot of flash, but we all know that it's not overly practical. And so in our show ring right now, I wouldn't say that we're in a real heavy zone of practicality. Uh, it's uh, a lot of uh, showmanship and uh, fitting skills. Can, yeah. if, I can, if I can just dive in there as well, being a cattle fitter myself in previous years, uh, you can also breed hair out of these cattle as well. A lot of that can be genetic. You breed it from the hairy ones. Yeah, some, some lines of cattle uh, just naturally uh, grow uh, massive hair coats and others are slick. It uh, just depends on what lineage you have. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, the last show I ever judged was in Texas, and it, it, was, a, it was the, um, I don't know, field day or something, and state field day, and, and a very, very last show, and this young man had the hair all done up, and it was slick, it was, I mean, it was, a, you know, it was beautiful hair, and, and I'm, I say, I'm going to, and he was so proud of it, and I said, I'm going to break this young man's heart. I'd rather have this slick, so I put him down the spot where he, he wouldn't come back for the championship. But I said, don't worry about it. I'm the only one that's ever going to do that to you. <laughs> so I was, no other judge will do that to you. I didn't judge again anyway, so it's all good. Well, we seem to be in a contest right now. Who can grow the most hair at shows? It, it, it's, you know, we, in, the, in the U.S., we kind of go to extremes. Aye. And uh, when we go to extreme, more is best. And so we're, we're really in that, what I call that phase at the current time. You'll, you'll perk up the ears of, of, of a lot of our Scottish uh, listeners who are professional in this trade there because it's everybody's in everybody's interest to groom all hair and they want to, they all try to learn the trade secrets from the older ones as, as to how we get this, this hair going on. Let's move on from the hair a little bit and uh, uh, to talk of shows, probably the biggest and, and, uh, and world famous show, the Chicago International, and you were elected to the board of that one in 1974. Can you tell us a little bit more about that monumental event, please? Well, there probably was never a show like the International Livestock Show in Chicago, Illinois. It started in 1900. It ran through 1974. It had a 75-year run. And, of course, uh, prior to 1970, the only thing that showed were Herefords, Shorthorns, and Angus. And then as we got into the 70s, we had an invasion of what I call uh, cattle from Europe, uh, basically exotic cattle from Europe. And so they became an important part of the International Livestock Show. But the International Livestock Show was something like there's never been. Uh, they would select the grand champion steer. What would happen at the International would have tremendous impact on uh, breeding programs throughout the, the North American continent. It was just one of those icon events that has had, uh, there's no way to, to explain the impact that it had on the, on the cattle industry. 
You were, you were obviously honoured to, to be there and to be re, uh, part of the board there. I mean, I, I was involved in the Royal Smithfield Show, which is our sort of uh, British equivalent of that, if you like, another iconic event. And, and uh, But the Chicago International surely is, yeah, it is the, the, the creme of the creme. Yes, I was elected in 1974 when L.B. Pierce of Woodlawn Farms in Creston, Illinois, was president of the International Livestock Show. And uh, so we worked well together, and I was proud to be a part of it. And going on with shows, uh, Tom, you regularly attend just about all the major shows in the U.S. and Canada. And I don't know whether our people quite realize just how big a task that is. And I think you have also regularly attend other shows like Palermo in Argentina and even our Royal Highland Show in Scotland. And they're all different, I guess. Uh, give us your impression of, of the sort of various shows and the different types of cattle uh, considered ideal in these various countries and, and continents, Tom, that's a question for you. Well, I tell you what, that's a pretty big question because yeah. first of all, I guess the, I try not to miss a major livestock show because it's an excellent opportunity to uh, see the kinds and types of cattle that people are breeding. It's also an opportunity to meet and see a lot of people. So I guess I'd call it the, the contacts you make are very, very important. As far as uh, talking about the shows, I'll take the Royal Highlands first. The Royal Highland in, uh, in uh, Scotland, is, is, to me as an American, it's very unique. Uh, my last trip there was two years ago, and I was awed with the frame of the cattle. Uh, you know, the bulls were weighing probably 3,000 pounds in their mature form. The cows were weighing about 2,500. They were huge. And the thing about them, they had a lot of U.S. blood in them, uh, blood that uh, really accelerated the growth. Uh, they, they, were, they were strong growth genes in the United States. But uh, the Scotch-bred Angus, I was really awed by, their, by how big they were. Mm -hmm. Now, when, when I went to Scotland, the only uh, native herd I saw was Dun Louise of uh, Jordy Suitors. Yeah. And those cattle were much more modern in their frame and had a much di more different look to them than what I call the traditional Angus of Scottish uh, descent today. <laughs> now, going to, going up to uh, Canada, well, you, you see some real uh, deep-bodied, easy-fleshing kind of cattle that are probably about a frame score of six. They, uh, they'll tolerate a little bit more frame. They're probably not as hair-conscious or fitting-conscious as uh, the Americans are. Uh, but uh, Canada has a lot of really good cattle, and uh, and uh, they're really what I call working ranch type cattle. Then in the United States, we 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 we're kind of segmented. Uh, we have uh, we have people that produce range bulls, we have people that produce show heifers, we have people that are on the genomic line, uh, we have uh, people that are just raising plain good Angus cattle. Uh, we have all kinds of uh, uh, of demeanors. And so I say that the Angus breed in the United States has a wide umbrella. There's room for any and everybody. All you have to do is breed it and raise the kind of Angus cattle that you can sell effectively. Uh, great praises. Can you, can you just um, uh, maybe bring in South America with that one as well? Uh, you, you've been in Palermo, I think, in Argentina. And in, in South America, you really have to appreciate uh, their they have cattle that are, again, really deep-bodied, really thick. Uh, I'd say they're, 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 they're rancher kind of Angus cattle. Uh, you really appreciate the, their goodness. Now, in South America, they're extremely good feeders. Uh, they're, I call them marginal on their fitting. 
but they still get them looking pretty good. But uh, those cattle, I, I would say that if we could get some of those genetics to the United States, they would certainly have a place in our programs here in the U.S. But uh, Argentina really has some excellent Angus cattle. And I'm right in thinking that it's health reasons that, that, that that's not allowed? Yes, the health reasons forbid uh, them to come directly from South America, from Argentina. However, they can come through Canada and kind of angle their way down to the United States. Okay, excellent. Uh-huh. I had uh, on the podcast last week a, a, an Angus breeder from um, Australia as well. And again, the cattle differ over there. Is that somewhere you get to as well, Tom? Yeah, I mean, if you go to Australia, uh, you know, with the with the conditions they have, you know, they're very, very uh, foot and leg conscious, which is certainly very important. And we've gotten away that gotten that way here in the United States in recent years, but they're really conscious. They have a real solid and straightforward performance program. Uh, they're very conscious about soundness of cattle. Uh, they're very good Angus breeders. I knew you were a much yeah. the depth, depth of knowledge and certain you have, uh, you certainly have described all those different cattle in, in, in a, in a very succinct way there. If we move away from the cattle a little bit, Tom, you're also a sheep breeder, and uh, uh, so am I. Uh, you have a really good flock of Suffolk sheep, I believe, and uh, while you're at all these other shows, do you get a chance to check out the sheep as well? And uh, are they all different in different places? Yes, I've been a Suffolk breeder for 40 years, and uh, usually when I go to a cattle show, I'll walk over to the sheep barn and check them out, as I did at the re- when I was at the Royal Highlands and when I was at Palermo, and if I'm at Denver or the North American, I always check them out, and uh, and uh, I enjoy doing that. And the sheep in uh, the Royal Highland would be slightly different to the Suffolk's, anyway. Would be quite a lot different to the ones that you have there in the U.S. In the U.S., for the most part, you know, we have we have what I call the frame sheep that are very tall and have a lot of beauty and are fitted. Then we have what we call the slick shorn. Uh, they're thicker, probably a little more meaty but don't have the frame and growth to them, but they, they certainly have a place. And when you go to the Royal Highlands, uh, you take, kind of take a step back because these these sheep are, are thicker than they are long. They are so thick and they're so meaty. And uh, and they've got those great Suffolk heads. I mean, uh, uh, they really have a place. And we've had a few of them come into the United States and uh, I'd say they've been relatively popular. Good. Good. Well, it's nice to know we can all trade there. Bob, if I can bring you in, you used to judge a few shows yourself, and would you would you often run into Tom? Well, you know, I, I would run into Tom some, and it was kind of interesting, and this kind of, I, I think this more points to Tom's character than anything. I I, I sold my cows at the end, Polt Herefords, to Herman Purdy, who sold them to a bunch of rich guys, and they were flushing them, and then all of a sudden I started seeing my cows, and they thought I knew something about Polt Herefords. All of a sudden, I'm judging a lot of Paul Herford shows, uh, and and then you know I'd be at state fairs. I I remember Wisconsin State Fair in particular, a great great state fair. And I was judging Paul Herford's Angus were in the other side of the ring, and Tom was just the nicest guy. Came over and visited me. I mean, I was I was a nobody. Just happened to uh, be there judging a show, but and I certainly wasn't uh, at, with Angus at that point. And gosh, I mean, that really sorts people out. You know, when when there's nothing to be gained, nothing any, you know, they and they come out, they take extra time, and they they visit, they show interest, and that's the kind of guy Tom is. I mean, and, and I, I had that happened at a couple of shows where Agnes were in one ring, 
and I was judging in another ring. And I mean, Tom was always there, friendly, and gosh, he's a he's a great guy. Thanks great for those kind words, Bob. Thank you very much. That's a great credit to you, Tom. And Tom, going back to the management uh, business, your bread and butter, I suppose. I've read that you've conducted over ten thousand different cattle sales in forty-seven states, seven provinces of Canada, the Caribbean, Mexico, and Scotland. Is that right? That that that's mind blowing. That is correct. And I suppose for our UK listener base, which we have sort of quite a strong listener base, can you tell me about the the one that you conducted in Scotland? Yes, uh, during the last World Angus Forum, uh, Jordy and Julia uh, Souter, they had an on-farm production sale, which is almost unheard of in Scotland, as you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, we managed that sale, and we really did enjoy it. It was a huge success, and uh, it really gave them a, kind of a leg up as far as being able to sell Angus seed stock on a international basis. So it worked out really good. Very enthusiastic for the traditional Angus, isn't he, Jordy? I've, I've spoken to him in the past and certainly kept some of those good old bloodlines going. And, and uh, um, as as you say, he found a market for those worldwide, certainly in, in the U.S. Can I make a quick comment on that? I mean, yeah. uh, Dunlouis Gypsy Earl, I believe, is the bull. Yeah. I mean, he is the best-footed bull I think I've ever seen, and so are all his progeny. And that's, that's an issue we have some in the breed. And but I mean, you can go and grab some of those kind of genetics that have those pieces. That I mean, we're really lucky to have some people keeping the original Angus herds alive and well because you never know when you need to go back and, and grab some of those traits. Absolutely, and yeah. I think uh, I was just going to say, uh, Bob uh, Jordy basically would at Dunluise would have the only native uh, bred Angus cattle in Scotland that he maintains as a herd. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That'll be right. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to throw this in. Uh, uh, you know, we've had a uh, tradition here. A gentleman from Scotland has made a song. It's called "An Angus for Me." <laughs> uh, 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 Willie McLaren. Would you know him? I do know Willie very well, and I know the song. I could sing it to you right now, but I will spare our listener with that one. But yes, I'm glad to know that that's gone universal. Then uh, Willie is some character. And we play that on our recorder here at the American Angus Hall of Fame. <laughs> and I was I was at the uh, when the first Angus cattle came to America from Scotland in uh, 1873. They came to Victoria, Kansas, and a uh, hundred years ago, in 1973, we had a hundredth year celebration, and uh, Willie was there and sang an Angus for me. <laughs> Oh, okay. brilliant! That's brilliant. He sang it in a few places. I, I, I know, and uh, what, a, what a great man he is, and a great character. Just moving on, just watching the clock here. That um, you find common threads between producers that have highly successful sales. Um, there is there is there a common denominator between these successful breeders worldwide? Well, I think yes, I think there is. But you know, they're they're all breeding and producing what they can sell. And uh, that's the thing I think that you've got to really be conscious of if you're going to be a successful Angus breeder. You've got to breed with selling in mind. Because if you can't sell them for a premium, you're probably not going to survive in the industry. So you've got to keep, you've got to keep attuned to what people want from the standpoint of commercial cattlemen, from the standpoint of people that want to show cattle, from the standpoint of whatever, whatever they're demanding. And so I think you really got to be, you got to stay attuned. And, but I think uh, basically 
the Angus business is also a people business where you've got to establish these relationships and uh, uh, they're really, really important in the breed. But I think I think that the regardless of where you're from and you get a group of people together from various countries about Angus cattle, I think they've all got basically the same goals and that's to make the product better and more in demand. A very sound and wise words to find out what you can sell and then produce that rather than the other way around. Um, Tom, if we move back onto your your flock of sheep, uh, the Suffolk's, you, you've had a string of championships uh, for, for many times at uh, Louisville, of course, which is the the main sheep show in the U.S. Yes, I've been very fortunate to be very competitive there. I've had a number of champions and have won the flock on numerous occasions and been the premier breeder and exhibitor. So I've really enjoyed raising Suffolk's and I've enjoyed selling Suffolk's. Uh, and you are... You were national president of the Suffolk Sheep Association for, for a number of years, I believe. Yes, I was president of the United uh, Suffolk Association and the National Suffolk Association. So uh, I was really involved. And then you more recently, you're you're back at that as if you have time to do these things. But Tom, you're back there reelected again more recently. Is that right? Yes, I was. So, I mean, the, the uh, say the Suffolk industry is really enjoyable and uh, I enjoy breeding them. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, it's the people, as you say, that are in the breed as well. And you've also served on the American Angus Association board. And uh, I suppose being on, on, on a sheep board and being on a cattle board there, are they much the same? We've got a similar focus of people between the cattle and the sheep people on, on, a, on a board, would you say? I'd say that there'd be quite a bit of difference. Uh, serving on the American Angus Association Board of Directors, uh, you know, is a pretty big task, and it's a major milestone to even get elected because there's a lot of obstacles that you have and hoops that you have to jump through. But the, the Angus breed in the United States of America is in, in, in pretty good hands because last year we had the good fortune to register 304,000 head of Angus cattle which is more than all other beef breeds combined in the United States. And so our, our bull demand in the United States today in 2021 is probably as great as it's ever been in the 148 years that Angus cattle have been in the United States of America. Okay, a good answer. And, and we move on, to, Bob mentioned, or you mentioned yourself briefly, the Angus Hall of Fame. And of course you have the the museum there that you just mentioned. Can you tell our listener a little bit more about the museum? It's somewhere I certainly want to visit myself one day. Well, you'd sure be invited because here at the American Angus Hall of Fame, we have the largest collection of Angus history in the world. Uh, We're fortunate to have 50 head mounts, actual 50 head mounts of some of the very best Angus cattle worldwide. In fact, our oldest head mount came directly from Scotland. It was Rovery of Powery. And if you go back in early history of Scotch Angus, you'll find him in a lot of pedigrees. When I was over in Scotland, I found him in a barn and I was able to give him uh, U.S. citizenship. So he's about 130 years old. And uh, we're really proud uh, to have him. We also have complete sets of herd books from all the countries. We have every Angus journal from the very first Angus journal of August 17th of uh, 1919. And uh, we have 60,000 Angus catalogs. Uh, we've got uh, about any and everything you want to this cattle. In fact, I say, if I can't find it in my office, it probably can't be found. <laughs> and Bob, you, you've been there, I think, Bob, you'll back that up there. So you've been there. Oh, it's a destination everybody should go to. 
They literally have every square inch of all the walls covered in framed things. Just everything you can think of. I'm really proud. I gave uh, 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 Tom uh, William McCombie uh, his actual obituary with his picture in it. Uh, he's, it's behind his desk now, but I mean, it's just that everything in, you can think of. I mean, the walls are covered. And they also have to make decisions on those bulls right when they pass away. And some of them, Tom says they're all the greats. Well, there's a few, there's a few in the doghouse that are like in the, uh, they're hung in the uh, storage closet, but they're still hung it on display. Okay. And then even in the storage closet, all the walls are covered. I mean, it, it's uh, it's something to behold. Everybody should, everybody that, that's interested in livestock, and if you have anything to do with Angus cattle, you need to be at the Angus Hall of Fame. And I'm right in thinking that's in Smithville, is that right? That's in Smithville, Missouri, and it's in the central part of the United States. It's about 15 miles straight north of the major city called Kansas City. Okay. And as I always say, we have free admission, we have free uh, uh, parking, and we even have free lunch if we know you're coming. <laughs> no such thing as a free lunch, they tell me, but I'm certainly looking forward to coming to try that one. We may get out there next year. We're, we're, we're planning on a few of us coming to uh, Montana, and I was hoping we could get across to you, but not sure if that's going to work or not, but I definitely will be there. Thank you. We've been honored to have some Scotch tours uh, stop by here, and and uh, they always enjoy uh, coming by, and I think we enjoy having them even more. If we move on uh, to the youth side of it, uh, Tom, you've remained committed to the youth, uh, attending every National Angus Junior show uh, um, where you've served as announcer and you've judged and uh, you, you've addressed a lot of these, and you've addressed a lot of universities as well. You're, you're very committed to the younger generation. Well, I'm really passionate about uh, Angus youth and youth in general, because if we don't preserve and and instill uh, excitement and knowledge about Angus cattle into their hearts and souls, our breed's not going to continue to prosper. And through the American Angus Association, this year we had our 53rd annual National Junior Show and the 55th annual National Junior Showmanship Contest. And uh, the uh, we had uh, 1,200 head of cattle of Angus cattle, registered Angus cattle at that event. It's, it's the biggest Angus event in the world. And it's a very special thing. And I tried to be a strong supporter of it because I think that uh, youth is the, the, the driving force that's going to carry this breed to the next level. And so we need to do everything we possibly can to keep them uh, interested and excited about the movement. Well, what great inspiration that is. And uh, Bob, didn't you tell me that uh, Tom addressed your marketing class when you were at Penn State going back the way? And I think he, he left an impression on you, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, they, we, here we were. They were going to have a bull sale. And this is after Power Play and Princess the year before were uh, supreme champion at the Futurity. And here Tom Burke comes and addresses our class. And boy, that, that's a big deal. You know, to have somebody of Tom Burke's stature come come to your class, and then and then he explained. I mean, all these things like the sale block needs to be at this height and this and this, and I, it was so technical and so thought out. I I just was astounded how much how how kind of scientifically what seemed kind of random to me was just down to a science. And so yeah, he left a big impression. That's gosh, Tom. I think that's forty three years at least 
ago. Yeah, it and, would be uh, uh, 40, 40 years ago. But I yeah. really enjoy. I try. I go to uh, you know about twenty universities and colleges a year to speak to students. And you know the the greatest thing that can happen to me is uh, twenty years later, I'm somewhere and the student will come up and say, or a young person will come up and say, you know, I remember when you spoke at our school, and uh, you know, it, it, it's it's so rewarding and it gives me so much satisfaction. I remember, that's for sure. That's, uh, so you got one in your column there. We didn't have, okay. It wasn't a bad sale, did you, too, those bull sales. Uh, oh, it was real good it. for an Eastern bull sale. Uh, you know, it, it turned out really, really good. Tom, yeah. no. Tom you've certainly done a, a lot of stuff there. And haven't you even been known to officiate at weddings? Well, I, I tell you what, I've got a uh, degree. I've, I've married five couples. Uh, and mostly Angus couples, and I've officiated at the uh, five Angus funerals. Correct. Uh, so I've uh, so I've got a divinity degree, and uh, 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 or I guess I don't know. I don't think I want to call it a degree. That might have misspoken. I guess I better call it a divinity license. <laughs> and uh, and so I really enjoy doing that. Uh, I, I like the weddings much better than the funerals, but I'm always uh, very very uh passionate about the funerals as well uh tom tom has the robes i mean he he does it upright brilliant and you mentioned uh, travels and tom you've always been a man who travels i know but i read in 2007 i think it was you were away from home for 341 nights you boarded 412 planes and had 412 safe uh, landings and uh you were named, I think, as your country's one of your country's best traveled people. Tell us, tell us about living on the road like you do. You must have some pretty good staff doing the organizing as well, I guess. Well, I make all my own reservations. That way, I can't blame anybody if anything goes wrong. And I had the honor of being selected by our syndicate newspaper, USA Today, one year as the most traveled person in America. But as far as my flights, uh, one year I did uh, 411 flights. And the thing I always considered to be important, that they balance the number of uh, takeoffs, balance with the number of landings. <laughs> I'm always very conscious of that, to see that they balance, because uh, that's pretty important. It is indeed. It is indeed. Again, mind-blowing statistics that I, I just, not so many people could even understand, and all in the name of, of, of cattle as well. And, and while, during this, of course, uh, like myself and Bob, you've, uh, you've written a large number of books too, I think, Tom. How many books have you written? Well, I think Bob would be the master of the books because he's just completed one on, on shorthorns, but I have done uh, 11 books, uh, basically uh, with my office staff here, uh, with Kurt Schaaf and, uh, and Jeremy Haig and Carter Ward, about the the Angus breed, the National Junior Show, people involved in the industry, and like I always say, these books today are probably just books. But I think in fifty to a hundred years, uh, they'll have some real value mm -hmm. to show what we were doing during this generation. I, I tell you what, so there's some of them are just fantastic. There's two books set of all the uh, best cows and sires in the history of the breed. That's just something that you really have as a resource for anybody interested in Angus. Okay. Thank you, Bob. Well, there are. We do have a lot of Angus listeners on here, and they'll know that there are certain books that we have over here, and I'm sure the collectors will have copies of these in their collection. But certainly, if you go to to AngusHall.com, there we go. Um, some of these books are there, uh, are ready to be ordered, and you'll see some more information 
about um, Tom Burke. And Tom, you've also promoted my book, or one of my books called Cash Cow, which I wrote about Jack Dick from Blackwash Farms. Uh, did you, do you ever have any dealings with Jack? What was he like? Uh, you know, uh, he he came into the industry with a with a big spark. I mean, he put together the biggest Angus herd in America, and almost overnight it was over. And unfortunately, uh, he it was, ended up being somewhat of a scam, uh, but still it had some credence to it to a point. Uh, I did I did have the pleasure of meeting him, but he was he was a very that's, mysterious that's guy. He was a very mysterious person, and I think he enjoyed being mysterious. And, uh, you know, he, he came to Perth, and uh, he would buy a half a dozen bulls, and uh, money was no object to him. He'd just keep bidding until he got tired. And uh, so he really, he really uh, was a real believer in uh, Scot direct Scotch-imported bulls. Yeah. And an incredible man from the research that I did. And for those, again, our listeners, the book is called Cash Cow. They're putting a little bit of a promo. And um, a very good book, I might add. That's, I enjoyed it. And I've you. given it as a gift to a lot of people, and they really have enjoyed it. Thank you. You gave one to me. Thank you, Tom. And uh, just for, for, again, for our listener, Blackwatch Farms, of course, bought the record price bull in 1963 of, of uh, Lynn Dirtis of Alls for 60000 all those days ago. Um we're moving on uh, uh, with with awards like Promoter of the Year and the Kentucky Colonel, you're known as, and numerous Angus Association accolades. You've had just about more awards than dinners, Tom. And, and, and this was capped off by having your portrait hung in the Saddle and Sirloin Gallery, I think, in 2017. Pretty much the highest honour, I think, uh, your industry can give. Well, I have to say this, that uh, my induction into the uh, Saddle and Sirloin Portrait Gallery was the highlight of my life. I mean, it's something that's very special and near and dear to me, and I can't express it in words. Uh, just what it meant to me uh, to get that honor. It was it was so special, and it'll always be special all my life. And and uh, I do uh, again. We've talked about this a few times for the listener on on here that uh, it is the uh, the great and the good of the livestock industry that only that make it to that. So it's a high accolade and. Bob tells me, as an Angus man through and through, when you eventually pass on, you even plan to be buried at the, the George Grant Memorial, uh, commemorating the first Angus, of course, that were imported into the U.S., uh, Tom. Well, the first Angus cattle came to the United States of America in 1873, 148 years ago, and they were brought here by a uh, businessman who was a silk merchant from Scotland that had come over to Victoria, Kansas, and he wanted to establish a colony. And he saw these longhorn females, all colors of the rainbow with great big racks of horns. And he was very familiar with Angus cattle. So he thought, well, I'll bring over four bulls and we'll see what happens. Well, they brought over the four bulls. They left, they left Aberdeen, Scotland on the battleship Alabama on April 1st of 1873. 45 days later, they landed in Victoria, Kansas. So they land. They came across on the, on the battleship Alabama. They had landed in New Orleans, Louisiana. Then they went by riverboat up the mighty Mississippi to St. Louis, Missouri. And then they went by train across Central America to Victoria, Kansas. And out at Victoria, Kansas is the, the Angus Monument that I made reference to where Willie McLaren sang Angus for me uh -huh. when we were 100 years ago, old on May 17th 
1973. We were 100 years old. Angus cattle had been in this country 100 years where those first four bulls arrived. Well, at this beautiful monument, uh, Mr. Grant is buried in this cemetery. And uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to acquire a lot, a burial plot next to Mr. Grant. So when the time comes, Mr. Grant and I will be buried next to each other. Wow, that's phenomenal. That's, that's total total dedication to the breed. And uh, Now, I uh, want to clarify that I'm in no hurry. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm honored that I'm going to be able to do that. And it's a, if you ever in the United States, be sure and go see the monument in Victoria, Kansas, because it, it'll, it'll just make you so proud of Angus and so pleased to be a part of our fraternity. Uh, okay, and Tom, your your knowledge of pedigrees and the Angus history is legendary, and you're cementing this right here and now. And are there are there other ones coming up through the ranks? Maybe somebody that you're grooming to someday take your place as the country's sort of leading breed historian, Tom. Well, I have uh, I have associates that work with me here in the office. Uh, Kurt Schaff uh, really has an excellent knowledge of Angus pedigrees. Uh, in fact, uh, some days he's better than I am. And then we have another young person, Carter Ward, who has recently joined us that has a great passion uh, for Angus cattle. But, you know, I, you know, I, I feel really fortunate uh, because uh, my first Angus animal had registration number 700,000. We just registered the 20 millionth animal in the United States of America. So... During my lifetime, I have had an opportunity to see 97% of the Angus breed unveiled before my very eyes. So I, I feel really lucky. So anybody I can get interested in Angus history, boy, I tell you what, uh, I do everything to encourage them. Well, they would, they would be foolish not to listen to you, that's for sure. Your years and years around the sea stock industry and the Angus cattle, and I think our listener wants to know, and I probably want to know, what, what excites you the most about what what. What gets you out of bed in the morning with with this, all this famous enthusiasm for the industry, uh, Tom? Well, I think I think the uh, thing that makes me so excited is the the thing that makes Angus cattle so exciting over other breeds is our breed is built on shifting sand. And now some people may think that sounds negative, but I think it's good because there's always something new. There's always something exciting happening in the industry. Uh, you know, now we've got the, you know, we're either getting, uh, we're either getting them bigger or smaller. Uh, we've got certified Angus beef. Uh, we've had the good fortune to be able to sell 1,250,000,000 pounds of certified Angus beef around the world. Uh, the great demand for Angus bulls, uh, an exciting calf crop coming by every year. We now have genomics coming into the industry. I tell you what, we got so many exciting things happening. It's it's hard to pick out one. So I think that, that, as I say, the thing that makes me excited about the Angus breed is Angus. Okay, there we go. That's uh, that, that's superb, Tom. And it has really been an honor to speak to you on this podcast. And, and uh, I hope that, uh, that you carry on with your travels around the world and, and uh, infusing others in the same way that you have uh, done here. And I hope our listeners can can still hear as I can really your passion for the for the Angus world. Uh, Tom, thank you. I really thank you very much for your time on, on, on speaking to us today. 
Well, I want to say thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I plan on doing this another 20 years. And uh, every day is a new and exciting venture in the Angus industry. And uh, Angus cattle are, are my life. And I'm just darn proud to be able to say that they've been very kind to me. Well, that's fantastic. And, and Tom, if you do get over to Scotland, I'd love to meet you in person. But likewise, we'll try and, uh, and get over there and see you at the, at the Angus Hall of Fame. Don't worry, the next Royal Highland show I plan to be at. <laughs> I was just going to say, you never know where in the world, you'll be at somewhere in the world, and you might run into Tom. You just never can tell. You know, he is, he's a, he's a man that's everywhere. <laughs> Bob, I thank you for your time as well. Um, back on the podcast as, as, as being a regular uh, contributor and, and for a little bit of research that you furnished me with here and uh, like to wish you well again with your short on book now that I think it's out on the shelves and uh, gentlemen both of you um, great pleasure to have you thank you very much for, for, for being with us well, thank happy you. days to you and thank you so much alright bye then thank you thank you for listening to this week's podcast which was kindly sponsored by Harbro suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.